Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Past and present collide in Kathleen McGill's dual timeline stories, where family secrets and past mysteries are unlocked in the present day. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Kathleen talks about the stories her readers love, interwoven tales of social upheaval, emotional drama, and lost love spanning centuries. We're lucky enough to have three ebooks of Kathleen's latest, The Secret of the Shadow, to give away to three lucky readers. It's an absorbing time slip saga that stretches from the Paris of the Terror and the Guillotine to the south of France today. Enter the draw and you could be one of three lucky readers to get a copy to read. Draw closes June 20. But before we get to Kathleen, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Kathleen's books and website, as well as a link to the giveaway if you desire to enter. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We love to hear from you. But now, here's Kathleen. Hello there, Kathleen, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Just as an introduction, you are in the UK in Bournemouth, I think, and I'm in New Zealand and Auckland, and we're both in various stages of a global pandemic. Tell us, what's happening in your part of the world, and is how is social distancing affecting you? Well, here in the UK, we haven't had a full lockdown. We've been allowed out for exercise every day. And actually, as, as we're speaking, today is the first day of a slight further relaxation. Um, we're allowed to go out as much as we can for exercise. And if you can't work from home, you're encouraged to go back to work. So things are sort of easing off a bit. Um, whether it's the right time to do that or not, there's a lot of discussion. Um, but yes, I'm in Bournemouth, which is on the uh, south coast of, of England. We are five minutes walk away from the beach and the cliff top. And so because we've been allowed out for exercise, we have been out most days walking um, along there. And it's it's just lovely. And we've been out for bike rides as well. I've got both of my sons living at home. They're grown up. They're 22 and 25. But they've both been here for the duration of this. My younger son thought he was coming for a fortnight to stay. And, and then the lockdown started. Uh, so he's been here ever since with his stuff in a room in London. <laughs> And my older son, the minute the lockdown was announced, he just piled everything into the car, drove down here, and he's been working from home here ever since. So, you know, there's there's some good sides to it and that I've had my family around me, which is, is lovely. Yes, that is. There, there are some good sides to it, which is lovely. Yes. Getting on to your writing, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you just had to write fiction, some sort of epiphany? And if so, tell us about it. Well, it's a kind of yes and no answer to that. I'd say 
not a sudden epiphany that I wanted to write in because I always wanted to write. As a child um, at school, if we were told to write a story, I was like, yay, I can write a story. And I absolutely loved writing them. Um, However, I sort of went down the science route at uh, in senior school and then I ended up in a job in IT. I always thought, you know, one day I'll write a novel. I know that I will write a novel one day. And I was waiting until I had the time to write. And I don't know, I, I think I thought that sooner or later someone would say, hey, take a year off work and write a novel. And of course, that was never going to happen. And so I suppose there was an epiphany moment in that I suddenly realised that if I want to write, I have to actually sit down and write. And there's no other way of doing it. And I have to find the time and make the time and squeeze out minutes from the day, whatever, just get on and do it. And so that happened maybe 15 years ago, I guess, realised that. And I started making time in my day to write. And once I started, that was it. I never stopped. I, you know, just kept writing. And what did you start with right then? I tried a bit of everything really back then. I I started trying a couple of novels, those two sort of half-written ones. And then I I tried short story, literary short stories for competitions, got nowhere with those. And then I started short stories for the women's magazine market. And that's where I kind of found my first niche, if you like. And I thought, oh, I can do these. And they started to sell. And at that time, I had young children and a full-time job. And the great thing is about short stories is, although they're, they're not easy to write, but they're quick to write. You, you, you know, you only need a few hours per story. Um, so you can realistically do one every two weeks or something and, you know, try and sell them. And the, the buzz from getting first acceptances was, was fantastic. Yeah, I can imagine. But now, at this stage of your career, you've made these dual timeline novels your thing. It's a situation where there's a mystery from the past that's been discovered and then explained in by the contemporary characters. That's yes. your specialty now, isn't it? And you've done about nine of these, I think, of you now. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. About eight, and there's two in the pipeline. Uh, And there's another novel that is just purely historical. And how did you come up, how did you develop or evolve into that particular niche? Well, I found that they were the novels that I most liked to read. And you couldn't, or you weren't always sure without reading a blurb whether a novel would be dual timeline or or what. But I, I came across authors like Kate Morton and Catherine Webb. And I just found that I absolutely loved their novels so much. And then I'd also started doing some genealogy research of my own. And my first novel, which is purely historical, is based on some characters from my family tree. And I felt constrained writing that story in that I was trying to stick to the facts as I knew them. And then I thought it'd be much more exciting if I didn't have to stick to facts. I could make stuff up. And so my first uh, novel, The Emerald Comb, was... I suppose the main contemporary character, to an extent, she's based on me. She's researching her own family tree. And my my tagline was, you know, what if you came across not just a skeleton in the closet, as it were, but an actual skeleton somewhere that's related to where you know your family, your ancestors lived. And I I had such fun writing that. And as soon as I'd written that, I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to try for more and more of this kind of yeah. Novel. Well, I've kind of developed a bit of a pattern. I, I 
alternate uh, chapters start with contemporary and end with contemporary and yeah weave it all together it's you have to come up with two stories for every novel because you've got to have the historical and the contemporary and weave it all together so it's, it's quite a jigsaw puzzle to to write them yes the most recent one I think well the most recent one that I'm aware of is The Secret of the Chateau and I think that was released just fairly recently wasn't it it's actually it's Released on the fifteenth of May, so oh as, gosh, uh, time, yeah, time yes. we're talking, it's not yet out. So, oh, that's I think it was in our local library, or how did I? Get, oh no, I got it from you, didn't I? That's right. Yes, yes, yes yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Sorry, I got an advance advance copy from you. Yeah. So, the secret of the chateau it goes back to the French French Revolution and the overthrow of French monarchy, and I think it's probably the first of your French book set in this period, isn't it? Um, yes, it's interesting you say first because I hadn't, I'm not really sure whether I'm going to do another one set in France yet. I might do. I do normally when there isn't the pandemic going on, we normally spend quite a lot of time each year in France because we both absolutely love it. That, that's one reason that I decided I wanted to set to, to set one in France. So I picked the Alp Maritime area because that's where I wanted to spend some time and travel and why not, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I haven't ruled out writing another one set in France, but I don't, I'm not as well up on French history. I mean, I knew about the French Revolution. We studied that in school and it's, it, it's one of those events that had knock-on event, knock effects throughout the entire world. But even so, when I, I when I started it, I was thinking, oh yeah, I know what happened in the French Revolution. And then I thought, well, I better just check up on the detail. And then I realised how little I actually knew. And so there was an awful lot of research had to go on for that one, which was quite difficult. So yeah, I, I, would I do another French one? I probably would at some stage. I, I don't know. I haven't got one planned at the moment though. Yes. Actually, I saw a reference on your website that you actually took your camper van called Gertie down there when you were researching that uh, book and that sounded like great fun. Tell us a little bit about that trip. Yeah, so we own, um, it's it's a small motorhome, um, well small in terms of motorhome, you know they can be huge, our one is six metres long and yeah she is called Gertie, you're right. We bought her a few years ago, we, since I gave up my day job, we like to spend up to half of every year travelling in in Gertie and usually France and Spain Spain for the year we spent last winter in Spain it was lovely um and uh yes about this time last year we were in the Alp Maritime area I was uh getting going with writing The Secret of the Chateau we were traveling around I was kind of looking out for buildings and saying oh that's my chateau up there it's, a, it's about like that and uh just soaking in the atmosphere and the mountains there and the villages and the way of life. Um, I, I do absolutely adore that area. And in fact, if there hadn't been the pandemic going on, we would have been there right now. We had yeah. uh, planned um, to, to go and stay in that area again. Oh, that's a shame. But hopefully things will come back, not in yeah. the not too distant future. Yeah, so Secret of the Chateau, you've got a group of friends who buy a small chateau together and then they start to discover something about the history of the house and there's lots of secrets and emotional twists and even the hint of a ghost. Interesting that you mentioned that you did do a lot of ghost, ghost stories because there's a hint of a ghost. Um, 
and it's it's really a tremendous lot of fun. And the both lines of the story, the, the contemporary one and the one of the aristocrats escaping from the French court, both very touching and real. So it blends together very well, doesn't it? Thank you. Yeah, I, I try to I try to use similar sort of themes for the for the historical story and the contemporary story, so that that sort of helps to draw them together. And in in that one, they're both trying to make a new life for themselves successfully in one case and less so in the other. But uh, it is all about change, which was during the French Revolution. That's that's what it was all about. Throw off the old order and uh, start again. Yeah. The Forgotten Secret, which is one of the other ones that I greatly enjoyed, links two women who are facing big challenges. And once again, there's a very common sort of thing. They're both living in very difficult circumstances. Ellie is caught up in the Irish Rebellion of 1919 and is in love with a young man who's determined to make his name being Ireland. And Claire is escaping from a very unsatisfactory marriage. It's the second book that you've set in Ireland. The other one I, I noticed was The Girl from Ballymore. And I wondered if there was something about Ireland that really attracted you. Well, my husband's Irish. Ah. <laughs> so we, we, we can start with him, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've been married 27 years. We've been together for like 31 years, I think. So I, in that time, I've been back and forth to Ireland countless times I don't know how many times and we have travelled all around Ireland we have taken Gertie over there and I absolutely adore the southwest of Ireland Cork which is where the girl from Ballymore is set and the forgotten secret I set it in County Meath which is where my in-laws um, lived and so it's an area I, I knew very well and yeah my my in-laws are quite staunch Republicans shall we say so I wanted to write a novel Maybe I'm trying to prove myself with them still. You know, I'm still the, the English relative. I needed to prove my, myself to them and say, look, I do understand what happened. I know about Ireland's history. I have to say I didn't before because it isn't taught in schools in England. You, you know, we just ignore Ireland completely. And, if, you know, I grew up while the troubles were still going on, but I didn't understand the background to that at all at the time. Mm. And it wasn't until I started going to Ireland and seeing the other side of it and seeing the same events reported by the Irish um, that I'd seen on British TV and seeing the difference um, and the difference in the language that was used and the, the way, you know, was, was the soldier killed or was he murdered? Was he shot dead or was he murdered? Was it? It's it's subtle. And then realizing that there's always two sides to every story, and one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And I, that's what I wanted to pull together in writing that novel. So it wasn't an easy one to write. Again, it's the history and the amount of reading and research, and and it's a very very fine line to tread on that one. But I was pleased with the resulting novel. Of uh, there was a point writing that one, I nearly threw it away and said, I can't do this. But I pushed on, finished it. My husband was the first reader and he said, this is the best one you've written. So it's I, lovely. And he, he doesn't praise for the sake of it. So I thought, oh, maybe there is something in this. And it has done well. And it's done well in America as well because the, yes. there's a lot of Irish descent there. So, so just, just a little aside, how did you meet your husband? Well, he was living in England at the time. I was a student in Brighton and he was living there. He'd, he'd come over from Ireland with a previous girlfriend, 
girlfriend and they sort of settled in Brighton and then they split up and I met him then. He was sort of part of a group of friends, really. We paired off. In that book, you also get into the, I think it's Maudlin Homes, Maudlin Homes, the, yeah. which have become very um, notorious in more recent years where, where the nuns started out probably with very good intentions but ended up being rather horrible places where young women who were pregnant or really just any sort of unprotected young woman could be put into one of these homes and become almost a domestic slave. One of your characters has a child in one of those homes and I must say I I was really barracking for her as a character because she was such a a lovely, strong, well-intentioned young woman and I was always hoping all the way through that she was going to discover what had really happened to her son. And it was just a kind of little thing that was left open, a little sadness that right at the end you you realise that she isn't going to get that satisfaction. She's not going to be the one to discover what really happened. The next generation is going to. Were you tempted to try and find a way to get let her find out? Well, yes, sometimes because I'm, I'm well aware that for the reader, the reader likes if you're if you're identifying really strongly with one of the characters you know you want you want them to prevail but it's real life you know i'm trying to, i'm trying to make it realistic and so there is that sadness but i do think that ellen does get a happy a happy ending in the end she you know she she does she does find love and has a a good long life in the end but yeah it, it's it's difficult to get the to get it right but you you I don't know, there's a danger, I think, if you try and tie it up to all too neatly, it can I be a bit I actually agree with so, you. Yeah, I was so, thinking um, about how you could do it, and I thought it would just be a little bit too pat and neat if you if you had. It would have, might have been a temptation, but it probably would have taken away from the story a little, actually, because that poignant tone was, was very much part of the whole story, really. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. So your books, they do follow these involve family secrets and you've mentioned that your first one you were interested in genealogy tell us a little bit about how that genealogical interest came about what was it in your own family that sparked it off um it was really just that it was back in it's about 2010 I think a friend of mine said oh did you know the the 20 the 1911 census is now available online and I just thought one evening, oh, I, my my grandparents had quite an unusual surname. I wonder if I can find them on that census. And I knew that they had been born in the early years, very early years of the nine, uh, 20th century, so 1903, I think, something like that. So, yeah, I immediately found them because I knew where they'd lived as well. That unusual surname helped. I immediately found them. And then I one evening, I just started going back through the censuses that were every 10 years and I got back to the 1841 census, which was the first one across England. And in doing that, I'd already discovered that my, it's my great, great, great grandparents. Again, just following that, that one surname, I found that there was the father and a lot of children and no sign of a mother on several of the censuses. And I was wondering, well, what's going on here? And eventually discovered that all of the, all of the children were the children of a his housekeeper. Well, she's written down on the census as his housekeeper. 
And I believe she did start off as a servant. He was quite well off. She was a servant. He'd married and then separated, but you couldn't get divorced in those days, not easily. And then he had 13 children with his, his uh, housekeeper. So that had, that, that, that's what drew me in, really, that story, their story. And my first novel that I self-published, it's called Mr. Cabell's Diamond, and the names have changed, but it's based on that, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, his wife, and then his housekeeper, <laughs> <laughs> to use the Victorian euphemism. <laughs> So do you think that in their in their own real lives, do they present themselves as husband and wife, do you think? Yes, I think they did. And I've seen certainly after his death, you know, on living in that house and she was calling herself on the censuses Mrs. Methold. So she certainly did. The children were all baptized under her name, or sorry, their births were registered under her surname but then later in their lives they all used his surname and certainly that's the name I've been investigating. And I Um, gather that there was a little bit of an aspect that he was regarded by his own family as a little bit of a black sheep was he was? Oh he was indeed yes because he'd been born into the aristocracy and the the house where he was born in Durham or outside Durham it's now one of those huge country house hotels that are run as wedding venues. It's incredibly grand. I've I've been up and had a look around it and thought, wow, they were born there. And he was the eldest surviving son of that family. So he kind of should have inherited, but he didn't. It got passed to his next brother down. And so there was another little mystery. Why did he get um, passed over? And in digging around, I can see that he, his father had died quite young. His wealth had been um, held in trust by his uncle, and he had a few run-ins with his uncle, trying to say that his uncle had mismanaged the money and was trying to extort more money out of him. And then he married and then separated and then shacked up with his servant girl. And I think all of these things probably worked against him. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he, he lived his life very firmly in the middle classes in Worthing on the south coast, it's near Brighton. And his children all ended up working in trades. So there was a very definite uh, slide down the social <laughs> scale in that family. <laughs> Look, turning to your wider career, tell us something about your life before you became a full-time writer and how did those have those experiences helped can contribute in any way to your writing? Well, before I became a full-time writer, for about 30 years, I worked in the IT industry. So, yeah, it's a bit boring, really. I mean, I sort of fell into that job and I loved it. I liked liked the logic, really, and I liked the problem solving and I enjoyed designing systems. But all the the time, though, I always felt that I was only using half of my brain. I, I thought I was using the sort of logical part and I wasn't using the creative part until I started writing and the two the two careers sort of overlapped for a number of years but that was hard work so just it was just over a year ago now I, I sort of took the plunge and said right okay I'm earning enough from writing I'm and I'm getting close enough to pension age anyway and decided to um, drop the day job so I don't think I've ever Actually, the novel I'm writing at the moment, the main character had a very similar job to me, <laughs> to, to my IT job. But, it, you know, it's not a very exciting job to write about. So I, I don't, I haven't really used the detail all that much. 
it's more sort of wider experiences of, of travel and, and more sort of, you know, general experiences. I, I lost my mum five years ago and then, and that does mean that I can write about being with someone as they die, which is, you know, terribly sad, but you, you, there's that sliver of ice in an author's heart. You use these experiences that you have to make it feel real on the page and to, to add more into that. Yes. How many years were you working full-time and writing on the side? I mean, that's a tremendous amount of dedication to, to keep those two things going parallel. How, how long did you sustain that for? Well, there was a number of years when I was just writing short stories, which was easy enough to do in the evenings. I got my first uh, book contract in 2014, and then I gave up work in 2019. So five years, it was five years in which I had book deadlines and the day job to try and juggle. Yeah, a lot of work. Yeah, it was, it was, because it was every, I'd log off my work computer, Mm. have an hour sort of faffing around and having dinner and whatever and trying to get out of one mode and into the other. And then I'd go and sit and try and write 500 words every evening and um, 3,000 at the weekends to to keep the novels ticking over. Mm. Mm. Turning to Kathleen as a reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and it's kind of predicated a little bit on people liking to either follow through a series or, or like you, a, a writer who produces a string of books that have got a similar relevance, even if they're not actually a series. Are you a binge reader? And if so, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? I read a lot. I'm always reading. I've always got generally two books on the go. I have what I call an upstairs book and a downstairs book so that I don't have to suffer the stairs with my bad knees too often during the day. However, I I tend not to binge, I I tend not to read a series start to finish. I jump around a lot and I like to read different genres and I read some non-fiction and different authors and I'm always changing. So in that respect, I'm not a binge reader, although I am an avid reader and I'm always reading. But having said that, there are certain authors that whatever... You know, as soon as their next book comes out, I've ordered it. I might not get to it straight away, but I will definitely read it. And those are the ones that I would recommend. And, you know, the names I said, Kate Morton, Catherine Webb, and Iona Gray, her, um, she's only written two so far, but they are probably two of the best books I've ever read. Letters to the Lost and The Glittering Hour. And they are just, just so beautiful. And then I do, I must admit, I do love J.K. Rowling's books, both the Harry Potter and the um, Cormoran Strike books. I really, really enjoy those. So that's, you know, one of the big name authors that, that I always read. Because I know a lot of authors and I like to support them, I do find myself reading a lot of my friends' books as well. So there's always way too many books to read. Mm. Iona Gray's books, what, ne- what niche are they in or what genre are they? Dual Timeline. Oh, are they? Is, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So the Letters to the Lost is a World War Two one, and it's just beautiful. And then the Glittering Hour is set in the nineteen twenties, sort of bright young things, and it's a really lovely insight into that society of, of that time, post First World War, the rich having fun really, um, and not really caring about the consequences of their actions. And it, it, it's it's fantastic book. So. Sounds good. We're coming to the end of our time together. So just circling around, pausing here and looking back over where you've come from, 
Is there one thing or anything that you change about how it's all unfolded or would you probably do it pretty much the same all over again? That's a tricky one because there's a bit of me that wants to say, well, I wish I'd started writing seriously earlier because, as I said at the beginning of this interview, I always knew that I would write eventually and I was waiting till I had the time. But on the other hand, I... I think the older you get, the more experiences you've had, the more you can put into your writing. So I do suspect that if I had tried to write a novel aged 21, it wouldn't have been very good. I certainly wouldn't have been able to get across the sort of emotion and the, I just wouldn't have the right life experiences, I think. So, so no, I'm not sure I would change anything. I'm kind of glad I've done things the way I have. It was a a difficult decision to give up the day job because I was earning quite a lot from it. And then, you know, to give that up for a very uncertain income, but I'm very glad I did. It's, you know, it's worked out. And the the great thing is being a writer, you can do that anywhere. So we've been able to go away in Gertie for months at a time and I can write while we're traveling. You know, I just need a couple of hours every day to say, okay, leave me alone now. I'm going to get on and do some writing. And uh, yeah, and it's, and I'm looking forward to being able to get back to that lifestyle when the, uh, the pandemic's over. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. So looking ahead into the rest of this year and perhaps into early next year, what is next for Kathleen the writer? What are your plans over the next 12 months or so? Well, I'm, uh, so I've got the book coming out on the 15th of May, The Secret of the Chateau. I've got two more books uh, in the pipeline uh, in the same contract, one of which is getting towards the final stages of edit- editing and the other one is about half written. So those, one of those will come out in about November and the next one is next year sometime. So I'm pushing on with those. I've got ideas for several more. So once I've written those, I need to start pitching for another contract. And uh, and the other thing I'm doing, we've talked about the genealogy for really just for my brother and my cousins and my children and my cousin's children. I'm trying to write that up at the moment and produce a little book um, that tells the story of, of that family. It's great. So that's just a little private project, really, but uh, it, it'll keep me busy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I absolutely love it. There's no better feeling than when you get a um, an email or a Facebook message or whatever saying, I've just finished reading such and such a book. I really loved it. Thank you or whatever. Um, and I've had, I had a message the other day saying that my books are helping, help somebody through a the pandemic, you know, they're sitting at home and uh, they've discovered my books and have just been reading them all. And I think, oh, well, if I've helped somebody, that's great. So yes, you can get in touch with me various ways. I have a website, kathleenmcgirl.com. And there's a contact form on there if you want to send an email. I have an author page on Facebook, Kathleen McGirl, and very happy to answer messages um, on there. I'm on Twitter as at kathmcgirl. And again, any, anybody that sends me any message, I will always try and answer as soon as I can. And when we aren't in pandemic, do you also do book tours and that kind of thing? I've never done a physical book tour. The vast majority of my sales are ebook, but I'm glad you mentioned that because I should have said uh, there is a book, a blog tour starting up on Thursday for uh, *The Secret of the Chateau*, 
that there should be reviews on about about 30 blogs, I think, over over the next couple of weeks. Wow. Uh, should, should be featuring my, my book. I'll be uh, tweeting about them and putting the links onto my author page on Facebook as well. So, right. um, yeah, so, so I always do a virtual blog tour for each book. They're, they're great publicity and the, the bloggers out there are amazing, the, the amount of work they put into it. That's great. So do you, how does that work? Tell, tell people how that works. I have a this woman called Rachel who organises blog tours for me. She is in touch with an awful lot of book bloggers, and she says, there's, tells them there's a new Kathleen McGurl book out uh, or coming out. Who would like to review it? And they all put their hands up. Or hopefully, they do and say that they'd like it. They get advanced copies, um, and they read it and they post a review on the designated date that Rachel will tell them what date onto their blogs and then, you know, a bit of tweeting about it, a bit of Facebook about it. And it helps raise the profile of the book. So it is a virtual tour. Really. It's like the book is going round all, the, all these yeah. blogs. Yeah. But you don't actually have to write blogs about it. No, I mean, you can do, but obviously that's quite a lot more work for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, prefer, I prefer the reviews. And the great thing is about the reviews is that then those they can be copied onto Amazon as well. And it sort of kickstarts the book yes. uh, and its reviews. And, and that all helps with future sales. So that's starting just in a couple of days. Yes, yeah, starts on Thursday and then the, the book is released on Friday. Wonderful. Look, Kathleen, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And um, I can certainly endorse the book. I'm sure you're going to get some good feedback on it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.